<clears throat> but sometimes we refer to Hezekiah's good king Hezekiah. And he was one of the good kings. In fact, they didn't have a good king at all in the north. Nineteen kings, nine dynasties, but not a one good king. This was after the division that took place. The ten northern tribes went together. But in the south, we had Judah primarily with Benjamin hanging on. We could think before the division of David. He was a good king. I mean, all of them had problems, but he was a good king. Solomon started out to be good. And then there was Asa and Jehoshaphat, son and son, who were very good kings. And then we think about later Joash. Now, Joash started out very well, but he turned out bad. And other kings were like that, like Uzziah. Started out very well, but he ended bad. And then there's Jotham. Nothing said bad about him. Just good, not a lot recorded about him. And then we think about Hezekiah, and then there was Josiah. Now that's about the list of the kings that we might think of as being respectably good kings, some much better than others. Let me read what the Holy Spirit said about Hezekiah. In 2 Kings 18, I'll begin at verse 5 and read down to 7. <clears throat> he, that's Hezekiah, trusted in Jehovah, the God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, and nor among them that were before him. For he clave to Jehovah. He departed not from following him, but kept the, his commandments, which Jehovah commanded Moses. And Jehovah was with him, whithersoever he went forth to prosper. He prospered, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and served him not, and on and on. But that speaks well of the man. A puzzle to me is how <clears throat> Hezekiah could be so good and come from such a wicked father and then turn out in the next generation such a wicked son. Hezekiah was sandwiched between Ahaz and Manasseh, two of the most wicked kings that they had north and south. Now, I can't understand that. We talk about being good examples to our children, and they're going to follow our example. But Hezekiah did not follow his father's example. That's good for him. But Manasseh did not follow his father, Hezekiah, and that was bad for him. How that good king could be sandwiched in between the two, I'll, well, I shouldn't say never. You should never say never. But uh, I don't understand. <clears throat> there were a number of crises in his life, being a king. You can imagine how... Maybe every week there was something that came up, reigning over God's people, and certainly at the time when the Assyrians were coming down, threatening all the time, in fact, took away the ten northern tribes into permanent captivity just a few years before he began his reign, and they were always threatening. But we want to, thinking, we want to think about four <clears throat> important crises that came into the life of King Hezekiah tonight. The first one he met when he became king. As we've mentioned, he followed a wicked king, his father, Ahaz. Now, just to give you an idea how wicked he was, <clears throat> he had the temple closed. 
He had another altar, not the altar that God had required for his worship. The Assyrians had been uh, successful, and so when he was visiting in Damascus, he saw their altar. He had a blueprint drawn, sent it back to the high priest, said, we want, a, we want an altar like that. The Bible also tells us that he had erected altars on every corner in Jerusalem. Now, that's the expression. I don't mean that every, every block, but in other words, a number of idols were, were worshipped at these different altars. Among the worship of idols, he allowed his son to pass through the fire. That was in worship of the idol Molech. Well, I don't think of others right now, but that gives you an idea of what kind of a god King uh, Ahaz was. So, Hezekiah has to decide, shall we just go along with the current? Shall we continue to do what everybody's doing, that which is popular? Or shall I take a stand against that which is contrary to God's will and stand up for the law of Moses, God's law, and enforce it? As the king, I have the authority. That was a crisis. That was the first crisis, I suppose, that he had to meet. And he met it successfully. He had all of these false idols and altars done away with, destroyed, put out. We read about the reformation that Hezekiah brought about in his day in the city of Jerusalem, restoring temple and the temple worship and following the law, observing the Passover and the other feasts that God required that had been neglected, forgotten. He took a stand. <coughs> but he's not the only one in the Bible who took a stand. We think about Jesus taking a stand. When he began his public ministry, here he goes down to Jerusalem to the temple, the Passover feast. And what does he find? Well, they're making merchandise of the temple. He quotes the scripture. He says, this is to be my house of prayer, and ye have made it a den of robbers. And so he overturns the tables. He cast out the, those who bought and sold animals, the money changers. He took a stand against that which was wrong. Now, in a way, it wasn't wrong to buy and sell animals. God had made a provision for someone who had to go a long distance to the temple. He couldn't just carry or guide or lead an animal all the way down there. He could buy one when he got to Jerusalem. The problem was that they were selling them at exorbitant prices. They also had a policy of only accepting temple money. And people came from different areas. They had different kind of currency, so they had to exchange it. But the rate of exchange was exorbitant as well. And so that was wrong. And Jesus recognized that this was a den of robbers, the very temple of God. He took a stand. Also concerning the washing of hands, the traditions of men. In Matthew 15, they came and asked Jesus why he and his disciples didn't wash their hands. Well, the Pharisees had this idea that if you went out into the public, you might brush up against someone who had been ceremonially unclean, touch somebody that was unclean, not know it. And so they always, before they ate, washed their hands ceremonially. Now, I don't want the young people to think that uh, Jesus and his disciples never washed their hands before they ate. I mean, mom and daddy said, did you wash your hands? Would you go wash them again? 
<laughs> you know, but that wasn't the type of washing hands that he was talking about, or they were talking about. And so Jesus defended that. He said, you make void the commandments of God to keep your traditions. Their point was of contention, why don't you keep the traditions of the elders? And Jesus said, well, when you do, you make void the commandments of God. He took a stand. We think about the stand that, that Paul took. And he tells us about this in Galatians chapter 2. And this is equivalent to the record that we have in Acts chapter 15. He went up with Barnabas and he took Titus along with him. And the conference there was about, maybe another word would be better than conference, but they were discussing the need for Gentiles to be circumcised and to keep the Mosaic law in order to be saved. And Paul said no. He had a revelation from God. That was not the thing to do. But he tells us that he went up, that is to Jerusalem, by revelation. And the thought is that he was so convinced that it was wrong, he didn't need to go up. But the Lord wanted him to go, and so he went by revelation. And while he was there, because Titus was Gentile, had not been circumcised, the opponents, those who were saying, you've got to circumcise Gentiles, kept after him. Paul said, not for an hour did I give way to them. Titus was not circumcised. They were trying to take away our liberty that we had in Jesus Christ. If we think about Martin Luther. He had taken a stand against the Catholic Church. He was a Catholic priest. Nailed 95 theses upon the, the church door there in Wittenberg. Especially against their practice of indulgences. Well, he was called before the carpet, as we say. Charles V required him to come before the council, the Diet of Worms. And he gave his defense, and then in the last summer he said, Therefore, I stand. There are times when we, as Christians and children of God, have to take a stand. Like Jesus, and like Paul, and like King Hezekiah. It may be a stand against evolution. Maybe it's a stand against liberalism, infidelity, subjectivism. People say, well, you can read the Bible and it can mean whatever you want it to mean. I've talked to people like that. I cannot understand them. They've got common sense in so many ways, but they'll say that black is white and white is black, in effect. That all of these religious bodies who are teaching different things are okay. Why? Well, you can just make it mean what you want it to mean. We have to take a stand. The Bible is God's objective revelation. Propositions that have been put forth that we can understand that we need to obey. Maybe it is a stand we need to take against humanism. Where they do away with thought of God. And just do those things where man is a God. Where man is the one who has all authority. King Hezekiah took a stand for truth. And so must we. If we be a faithful child of God. There was another crisis that came into his life. And this was in the year 701 B.C. Hezekiah had been reigning for 14 years. Now, let's paint the picture a little bit better. In 722, the northern kingdom had fallen. 
permanently. The Assyrians had carried them off into captivity. They'd left a few there. And then they'd sent folks from other areas there. And when they married and inter, inter whatever you do, uh, they became the Samaritans. We talked about the Samaritans this morning, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. And so they had taken the Assyrians, the northern capital, their towns, carried the people off into captivity. And then they came on down into Judea and took a number of those towns until the point was that Jerusalem was surrounded by tens of thousands of Assyrian soldiers. Well, Rabsaki, one of uh, Sennacherib's officers, came and told the people, don't pay any attention to what King Hezekiah tells you, that his God's going to deliver you. You see all the places that we have taken that have fallen to the Assyrian army, and not one of their gods was able to stand up against us, and neither will your God. When the word was brought to Hezekiah, he rent his clothes, put on sackcloth, Rabshakeh wrote it out in a letter and sent it to Hezekiah. And when he received the letter, he took it into the temple of God and just spread it out before the Lord. Hezekiah had a great crisis. Surrounded by over 185,000 soldiers. And everybody else had fallen. Many of God's people, the other tribes and so forth. What was he going to do? Hezekiah was a man of prayer, and he turned to God. He knew where to go. Spread out the letter, Lord, here's the situation. Of course, he knew God knew what it was, but we need your help. We don't know what to do, and we're placing all of our trust in you. Well, God responded. You remember how the angel came one night to those soldiers that were surrounding Jerusalem? And 185,000 of the soldiers died. The next morning, the few that survived saw all the bodies that were dead. And so Sennacherib and those who remained went back home to Nineveh, the capital. God helped Nehemiah, Hezekiah, destroy the army of the Assyrians. And to be victorious because he went to God trusting him and in prayer. Now the question comes, who do we turn to when we have a big crisis or even a small crisis? Where do we put our trust? Is it in ourselves? I'm going to work this out if it's the last thing I do or do we turn to God and say, Lord, I need your help. I can't do it. I'll do my best, but I can't do it by myself. Back in 1938, Orson Welles and his company of actors were on the radio. And before they got into their play, the announcer said, we're having a play. So Orson Welles and his actors, I've forgotten what they called the company. But evidently people didn't pay any attention to the announcer or they tuned in a little bit after he said his bit. Because they got into the play and it was really realistic. They made a movie about it. I saw the movie on TV one time or another. Maybe you have too. And it was about a Martian invasion. I think it was in the state of New Jersey. And people who didn't hear the announcement believed that it was actually happening. It showed uh, 
folks, you know, jumping in the car with just as whatever they could grab and fleeing the area. They believed it. Even mentioned some who took their own life. It must have been a very realistic play to convince people like that. But my question is, those who heard that, where did they place their trust? Was it in God? Well, the movie didn't tell us about everybody. Maybe there were those who placed it in God. I don't know. But there were those who didn't and didn't know what to do. But the question is, when we have this crisis, are we trusting God and praying to God for guidance and help? Or, like Hezekiah, are we just turning elsewhere? Hezekiah passed through that crisis. Well, there was another soon after that. He had uh, a sickness unto death. That's the way the Bible put it. And God said, Isaiah, and Isaiah the prophet lived at the time of Hezekiah. He said, I want you to go and tell Hezekiah that he's going to die. He said, put thy house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. That's pretty plain. You're going to die and not live. First thing Hezekiah did was to go to God in prayer. Immediately he went to God in prayer. And he tried to remind God, I have tried to do your will all of my life. And I need your help. I want to live longer. And he wept sorely, the Bible says. Well, not only did Hezekiah pray promptly, but God answered promptly. Before Isaiah got home, the Bible says he's about middle way that he had left. God said, Isaiah, I want you to turn around and go back. And tell Hezekiah that I have heard his prayer and I've seen his, his tears. And I'm going to extend his life another 14 years. Another 15, excuse me. 15 years. And he gave him a sign so that he could know that he was telling him the truth. He had a great crisis whether he was going to live or die. He had a sickness unto death, but God let him live another 15 years. I don't suppose there's anybody who hasn't somehow passed through a crisis of sickness, whether it's personally experienced or someone close by in our family or a friend or whatever. That's a common crisis. And do we, like Hezekiah, turn to God for help? Well, he's the example that we want to follow. And do what he wants us to do. How do you handle sickness? Well, let me read from Hebrews 12, 5 and 6. He's talking about being chastened. And the context would suggest the type of chastening that was threatening these Hebrew Christians was persecution. He said, you've not, you've not striven unto blood. No, you've not suffered blood striving against sin. It's going to get worse, but you've not had to suffer greatly from the persecution. And then he says, quoting from Proverbs, My son, regard not lightly the chastening of the Lord. Nor faint when thou art 
removed when thou art reproved of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every one whom he receiveth. And then in verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. There's a purpose in our discipline. A Christian went to the doctor for an examination. And the doctor gave him a thorough examination, and then he told him that he had cancer. And you know what the man said? He said, so that's the way I'm going to die. I mean that calmly. We are all going to die. This man uh, felt some satisfaction in knowing. wasn't a question about how he might die. So that's the way I'm going to die. I mean, I don't know how I'm going to die. You don't know how you're going to die. We need to be like T. T. The longer it's left in hot water, the stronger it becomes. Hezekiah came through this crisis, and so can we. There's one other crisis I want to look at. It was after this that the up-and-coming Babylonians sent uh, nobles and princes and gifts to Hezekiah. They had heard how he had survived his great illness, and they came to congratulate him. Some think that they came also because they'd heard about what happened to the Assyrian army, the 185,000, to make an alliance with them against the Assyrians. But the Bible plainly says that uh, they came to congratulate him because they'd heard about his sickness. And when they came, Hezekiah showed them everything. The gold, the silver, his munitions, everything in his treasury. In fact, let me read from 2 Kings chapter 20. And then notice what the reply is that uh, Isaiah has for him. Starting at verse 12. And at that time, we wrote... Dagbaladan, the son of Baladan, the king of Babylon, sent letters and a present unto Hezekiah, for he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah hearkened unto them, and showed them all the house of his precious things, and the silver and the gold, and the spices and the precious oil, and the house of his armor, and all that was found in his treasures. There was nothing in his house, not in all his dominion, that Hezekiah showed them not. And then came Isaiah the prophet unto king Hezekiah, and said unto him, What said these men? And from whence came they unto thee? And Hezekiah said, They are come from a far country, even from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in thy house? And Hezekiah answered, All that is in my house have they seen. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not showed them. Now notice what we read. Isaiah had a rebuke for King Hezekiah. Hezekiah, Isaiah said unto him, Hear ye the words of Jehovah. Behold, the days come that all that is in thy house and that thy fathers have laid up 
in store unto this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith Jehovah. And even the sons, your sons that ye shall beget, shall be carried off into Babylon, and they shall be eunuchs of the Babylonian kings. Well, we wonder, why? Well, we get more of an answer when we turn over to Second Chronicles chapter 32. Let me read three verses here. Because it had to do with pride on the part of the king. Second Chronicles 32, 25, and 26. And Hezekiah rendered not again according to the benefit done unto him. For his heart was lifted up, therefore there was wrath upon him and upon Judah and Jerusalem. And notwithstanding, Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of Jehovah came not upon them in the days of Hezekiah. So there was pride that came into his heart. He had all of this prosperity, and it came as a result of God blessing him and giving it to him. And God had done that because Hezekiah had been faithful. But he couldn't handle it. He could not handle it. Verse 31 tells us that God just presented this trial to him to see how he would respond. Howbeit, in the business of the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, who sent unto him to inquire of the wonder that was done in the land, God left him to try him, that he might know all that was in Hezekiah's heart. Now, God does that with you and me, I'm, I, I, I believe. He did it time and time again in the Old Testament days, and I'm sure he's still doing it. How will we respond to the prosperity? I mean, that's hard. A man, a young man, a young woman, they're going to take vows. And they will say, will you live together after God's ordinance, and will you keep yourself to him or her only? Will you... Love, honor, and obey in sickness and in health, in prosperity and adversity. And maybe the thought comes, well, adversity, I'm sure going to try. We never think about the prosperity. Actually, it's in the adversity times that husbands and wives are drawn generally closer together. They need one another. They're going to work things together out. But when prosperity comes, they they sort of... uh, maybe get further and further away. They don't feel like they need one another as much because they've got all of these blessings. The writer of Proverbs in chapter 38 and 9 said, and I better read it. He says, Give me neither poverty nor riches, Now, I suppose that would be a pretty good thing for us to ask God. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Well, why? Feed me with the food that is necessary or needful for me. I mean, I don't need any extra things, just what's needed. Lest I be full and deny thee and say, who is Jehovah? I mean, I've got all this prosperity. Who needs the Lord? Who's he? That could happen So keep me from riches. And then he says, or less I be poor 
and steal and use profanely the name of my God. Well, why would he use profanely the name of God? Well, he's been caught. He says, now, you tell us, did you do this or not? And he takes God's name in vain and says, I did not do it. Well, that's what's meant. And so the request is, keep me from poverty, keep me from riches, and I can handle it. Now, perhaps we could be like Paul. Philippians 4, he said he could handle it, and he had. We'll start at, uh, at verse 11. Paul said, not that I speak in, re- in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state therein to be content. I know how to be abased, that is to be poor, in poverty, not have what I need. I know how to be abased, and I know also how to abound, to enjoy a lot of good things. Everything and in all things have I learned the secret both to be filled and to be hungry, both to abound and to be in want. I can do all things through him that strengthens me. It's not Hezekiah this time that's our example that we want to follow. It's Paul. And maybe the prayer, the one who wrote the Proverbs, 